0: Welcome to another episode of Glam City. I'm Anna Clark, your resident historian here at UTS. On Glam City, we speak to the hard-working people who are lifting the lid on Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums, our indomitable glam sector. On this episode of Glam City, I'm delighted to be speaking with local historian Geoffrey Potter. Hi, Jeffrey, Welcome. Thanks, Anna. Now, you're a local historian on the Central Coast, a local historian slash librarian.
1: Actually, I'm a local history librarian, and um, I've sort of come through libraries. I've been in libraries since 1981, and I've been doing this particular job for 25 years. Uh, but uh, it's something that uh, is more aligned to my passions than my actual uh, formal qualifications.
0: This sort of stereotype of a historian is someone, you know, with leather elbow patches on their tweed jackets and bits of hair sticking out and their buttons done up not quite correctly and you know you might sort of run into them in the archive, a dusty archive or the, the smell of dust coming off them as they open and shut their books. You don't look like that at all. You look like you've come straight from your office job or council job. What does a local history librarian do?
1: Okay from day to day there is a lot of variety involved in what I do. Um, we collect uh, local history resources which might be diverse as diverse as uh, old maps, photographs uh, printed material ephemera um, books all sorts of uh, reports and things relating to a local area um, then we have to um, organise it and uh, conserve it so that it can be actually used by uh, the public and um, we have to make it accessible. So, for example, cataloguing and um, digitising is a big part of what we do. Um, And from day to day, we're dealing with the general public who come in and they might have casual inquiries that relate to their families in a local area or to a particular question they have about the local area. Um, It might be heritage consultants looking at particular sites in an area um, there might be discoveries in an area where say roads and traffic are doing some road work and they discover a corduroy road uh, and they need information on it so it, like, it, it's incredibly diverse work you never know from day to day what you're going to be doing hmm. Uh,
0: what was your journey to the history side of things? You said you'd worked in libraries before, but what gravitated, what was the sort of pull for this?
1: Okay, I've always been interested in history. I, my um, my grandmother uh, was a great storyteller and uh, come from a family of storytellers. And uh, basically, uh, I'd always been interested in local history and, and family history, and sort of joined historical societies early on. Um, I've always been interested in railways. I was a member of the Zigzag Railway for a few years as a volunteer, working on the carriages and engines and things up there. But um, around the bicentennial time, I got to look after a uh, rural museum that was being established at Galston, um, at Fagan Park. And so I got to learn a lot about the local agriculture and citrus farming, and that, and it kind of um, uh, got me interested in in the possibilities of becoming a librarian that worked with those sorts of collections and local history collections.
0: Is there a lot of interest in the Gosford area, Central Coast area, in local history? Um, yes, I
1: think there is, and and it sort of grows with social media. Mm. You know like there 's lots of Facebook groups and things like that, um, and lots of people always you know commenting on photographs and things like that um, the the uh, The other interest I suppose see we deal with a lot of um, very passionate uh, enthusiasts history enthusiasts, be they in the historical societies or individuals who have a passion. And often those individuals will sort of have a question that leads to a bigger project or, you know, sometimes years of research, which might result in a book. But it all adds to the local history, Mm. uh, the body of information available on on the local area. Mm.
0: When I was introducing you, I gave a pretty crude stereotype of what a historian looks like, Um, you know, old, bit stuffy, stuck in an archive it's quite different from the sort of amateur or enthusiast historians that you're describing, which is actually very grassroots, very community-oriented, and also often really collaborative... And community-based. It's not just one person alone. I'm sure there's a little bit of that, but you know, it's shared on social media. Mm. It's given back to the community. How does how do you think this kind of community-based history um, contribute to our not only our broader historical knowledge of the past, but also how we do history?
1: Um, because it's so grassroots, um, it involves a vast. Number of people in the community, so there are the there are sort of like uh, the the people who are involved in the history. Actually, a lot of the histories that have been done in recent times have been very timely because the the people involved are uh, dying out, mm. uh, are no longer you know they're now no longer with us, or but they were with us at the start of these projects that people. Um, begin on a particular area. So it's really timely that they're recording that history while it's still available. Um, I think that it's a very democratic, uh, lovely democratic way of doing history in that um, there's not one gatekeeper who knows everything about that topic. It's those people will, the people doing the projects will go to any number of archives or to any number of libraries or um, to family members or to community members, um, to institutions within that community to draw the information out and put it together. And then they often present it. Uh, there, there was a history of Your minor that was done recently, and that project started out small and the lady involved, uh, Julie Atchison, did a lot of research over the years. But she actually gave back to the community through displays that she would have from time to time. She would have um, a a DVD was made that resulted from her research and a lovely DVD of your minor history was created. And then finally, a um, fairly major publication has resulted that's recorded the first 50 years of your minor history which otherwise would not have been recorded and all along it's drawn people in from the community it's created a sense of community pride it's it's really enhanced that sense of uh, not only the pride but of community mm. you know we are a, a group that belongs to your minor mm. and we're proud of that area and this is our story and this is our story and you know, We owe so much to these people for actually having the energy and the stamina because mm. it does take a mm. lot of work and it does take a lot of time to actually pull these things together.
0: Um, I'm reminded of um, the British historian Alison Lightfoot's quote where she, she wrote in a newspaper article a few years ago that um, uh, family history is the third most popular internet activity after shopping and porn. Um, and I guess in a way that boom in local studies and local histories and community and family histories has been facilitated by the internet and the digitization of archives and now anyone can hop on and look at Trove and Mm. you know you can really have this huge kind of spread. Have you noticed in your 25 years working in, in local history through the local government a change in the numbers of people being interested in history and also how they're doing it?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's grown exponentially. Um, I think that uh, a lot of, as we get more and more people who are um, more tech savvy there and computer savvy there, they're starting to, to latch on to those great resources like Trove. Trove is wonderful. Mm. Um, and the amount of digitised material certainly gives you um, much better access to a lot of topics than before um, libraries such as ours we have a lot of material um, and we're working towards digitisation of a lot of it uh, but we've got a long way to go and, um, and I think that's going to be a, a, a challenge in the next few years is to sort of uh, find platforms that we can use to actually get all of that material out there and um, but yeah, there has been a, a an exponential growth and and, a, and in, a sort of a it's it's amazing the range you know of questions you get and some are some are like I said are so sort of just idle curiosity sort of questions right through to very detailed questions mm. about a, lo- a lot of people are interested uh, in our area on the the property that they live on. You know increasingly they're they're starting to ask, "Oh, okay, this is my place. Um, it's a little bit more challenging often than to find history on them than say a city block or whatever mm. that might be have rape books and all these sorts of records about them. but um, yeah, there's some terrific um, interest in in those sorts mm. of topics that you know and and it is growing, but the access to resources is is improving out of sight, really.
0: How do you, as a librarian and I suppose, as a public institution, how do you prioritize those questions, like whose historical questions get answered first, or where's the library putting its resources to answer those questions?
1: okay, basically, if they come to us with a question, it's first in first served
0: okay <laughs> that's um, easy <laughs> and
1: and it does make it it does make it easy um in that yeah, and that's really the only way we can do it. I mean, there are times when there, you know, we we get a question, say from, uh, like I said, the the Roads and Traffic Authority, and they've discovered something and they've got a very short time frame right. to do something about it or whatever, um, and we need to provide them with that information as quickly as possible. But generally, it's a first in, first serve. We don't sort of say, oh, this question is more important than. Mm. Than you know, uh, the question the question of uh, you know a, a lady in in Melbourne about a, a place where she played as a child is no less important than you know a, a council inquiry mm. or or um, those sort of institutional inquiries.
0: With a sort of an important role to um, archive and be an archive, are there? I'm interested in what do you do with some of the histories of the central coast that can't be housed in archives, like Indigenous histories um, that perhaps are in the environment around us, you know, in the landscape, um, if rock art or oral histories that are in people's houses and communities and in, you know, even in their, mm. in their own minds. Mm. Um, how do you deal with that as a public institution?
1: Okay, we haven't, I would like to, but we haven't, Uh, had the resources to do a lot with with Indigenous communities. Um, We do have oral histories in our own collection, quite a large collection that we've digitised, but there's not a lot that we can do unless we've got the resources to approach it in a systematic fashion. And with those communities... you can't just bolt in and say here give us your stuff mm. um you want to build trust um it, it's often more on a personal relationship level that you build that trust and and you and it takes time and and what have you but but no it's not it's an area i'd really like to do much more with but uh, yeah our resources are sort of stretched
0: can you tell us a little bit about the local history of the Central Coast?
1: Uh, yes. Um, okay. There's probably sixty thousand years of Indigenous history, and we've got one of the richest rock art galleries um, in in Australia, uh, if not the world. In our area, in up around uh, Woy Woi and the hinterland, um, the uh, First European settler was James Webb, who came to uh, he settled at the Rip uh, near Woi in 1823, and um, development was very slow in the area. It was really only when the railways came through in the 1880s that you get um, you start to get people, uh, more people settling in the area. Um, There was a, a, a. before the railways of course there was a uh, a major industry was the shipbuilding industry and between 1829 and 1953 there are over 500 named vessels ships built in our district on Brisbane water um then you sort of after the railways in the 1880s you sort of uh, jumped to the 1930s when the freeway or not the freeway it was the highway then um, came to Gosford and and went up through the central coast and um, so uh, and then of course you get gradual improvements to the roads and the infrastructure over time Um, the uh, citrus industry was another major industry in our area um, and uh, that really sort of started on the lowlands in about the 1890s and then um, went up to uh, the Somersby Plateau. And um, there's still remnants of that industry around, but its sort of heyday sort of uh, was up to the 1940s.
0: That that sort of um, history of distance or transport is actually so important, isn't it, in terms of the not only... I guess just the travel from Sydney to the Central Coast, for example, I remember re- um, listening to an oral history of a local f- fishing family who um, you know, used to catch prawns and they said they would stand next to the train station with gum leaf boughs, sort of keeping the flies off their prawns, waiting for the train to sort of roll up at the station and take the catch to Sydney, uh, which is sort of, it's not that long ago, um, but you know how times change. Yeah, transport.
1: I mean would have been quite isolated it was quite isolated and the the um the nature of uh, the the central coast was that little communities would often spring up uh, often related to the shipbuilding right? and when the shipbuilders had a, a they'd have a, a slipway and they'd build a couple of ships and then there might be a blacksmith shop established to, you know, supply the iron parts of the vessel. And um, then little communities would start around those slipways and they'd turn into uh, settlements like Blackwall, mm. um, Empire Bay, Davistown. But though the history of the area is that all those little villages would grow up in, in you know, separately and they'd all be their own community of interest. With their own distinct history, and it it it, it sort of um, there's still those villages still have their own identities today, which is great. Mm. Um, but that relates to the the way that the early settlement, but also the the hilly nature of the of the area. It's quite rugged, mm. very rugged.
0: You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And today we're speaking with local history librarian, Geoffrey Potter from the Central Coast Council and Library. Geoffrey, we've been talking a little bit about the history of the Central Coast um, and a little bit about the sort of library in which you in which you work what prompted the first library on the central coast why do people want to or need i guess historical records of their own communities okay well the the
1: library in our local area uh, got started in uh, 1948 so that's the library service and interestingly it sort of started out because there were um, lots of changes to the boundaries of shires around that time, both around Sydney. There'd been a lot, lots and lots of small councils. And up on the central coast, there was a history of smaller councils, uh, Erina Shire and Woy Woy Shire and what have you. And then those, in 1948, those shires were, were dissolved. And then out of that, Gosford Shire and Woy Woy, uh, Wyong Shire, formed. And um, so what would happen is uh, you'd centralise your administration and that freed up buildings, right? So old council chambers at Woi Woi and at Gosford became available for other purposes. And so around that time, the Library Act, um, there was a push to get public libraries in many communities across Australia, across New South Wales and Australia. And so the local push for a library service began. And in 1948, a little library opened in a former council Shire Council building and also uh, in Woiwoi Shire Council building. And Woiwoi actually pipped Erinna, the one at Gosford, right? Um, but um, the collection of local history in the library started probably about 35, maybe 40 years ago, and it, sort of, it started in a small way. I mean, any local history collection or any collection is only as good as the people mm. that have been in the job and have collected. So we were fortunate from the start. My predecessors, to whom I'm very grateful, they um, started collecting and um, there were sort of limitations because of the building they were in and what the amount that could be collected. And I think that they actually started out doing it as part of a uh, another job, you know, they might have been a reference librarian and did a little bit of the local history collection. Eventually, they employed local history librarians, uh, of which I'm about the third. And um, but they've built over the years, they built a very substantial collection. But um, one of the reasons I think that uh, a local history collection. In a library uh, got going is um, see so there are historical societies out there that do c- collect in communities but there's also libraries um, have uh, an ability if they do start collecting they can make material available pretty much any time the library's open um, to the general public, to council, to business whoever um, and Historical societies do a marvelous job. they do an absolutely fabulous job. Um, but being volunteer organizations, they're not always mm. available mm. or have the resources mm. to make their materials available.
0: What's your favorite historical resource that you have, not necessarily at your fingertips, but in the bowels of the library?
1: Okay, my favorite uh, my favorite collection is one that a fellow called Les Allen. Um, created, he was uh, he was a uh, self-appointed photographer for Central Coast Leagues Club, and between 1963 and the 1980s, he took photographs of practically every performing artist and act that uh, w- uh, the singers, the the magicians, the contortionists, the knife throwers. Um the uh, Dinah Lees and little Patties and <laughs> um, every every artist that played there um, he photographed and we 've got this uh, quite remarkable archive of photographs that as far as we know, and we 've been told this that um, there 's no other performing mm. arts archive like this photography collection um it's actually starting to be sought out by serious researchers of variety history uh because it's so unique but to actually get those performers performing uh photographs of those are exceptionally rare Mm. so that's that would be my favorite Mm. collection Mm. um but we're very we're actually blessed for some really good collections um A couple of years ago, uh, a lot of material from um, Spike Milligan's family was donated to the library, and Spike's family had connections to Woi from the 1950s onwards. And uh, Spike actually wrote some books there, and and uh, but the uh, the family, Spike's um, Spike's brother Desmond, who's now passed away, and Spike's. Uh, Nephew, Michael, uh, donated a tremendous archive of exceptionally rare, well, unique family history, family archives, original photographs, documents, memorabilia, all sorts of things, which we now have put in a permanent display at Woi Woi Library. And we actually got a state library infrastructure grant uh, to assist with that permanent display. And uh, so we're able to celebrate that connection uh, with Spike. Mm. uh you know and his family to Woi. so that's another favorite collection
0: you're sort of alluding here to i guess my next question which is you're part of this um, new south Wales organization which is um a, a, sort of an organization an organization of local history librarians yeah. what do you do is it useful sharing do you share resources do you? What do you guys do when you get together?
1: Okay. um, Some sort of strange handshakes. We have (laughs) library. Good morning teas. Good morning teas. Um, No, we uh, get together twice a year and uh, one one of the one meeting is a, a regional meeting and the others a metropolitan meeting and we uh, basically share share information on projects that we're working on um, that uh, methods of doing things like what's a useful platform to get your digitized material yeah. out on um, oral history projects is some great Resources. Um, the state library is developing a, a, a um, platform called Audacity yeah. for their oral histories, and um, that uses uh, crowd sourcing to actually transcribe the, the oral histories. And we learn about those new resources and those. those there's some fabulous mm. material, you know, and, and platforms and things that we learn about. So,
0: does every local council have a local hist- have, a, have a sort of council historian? Um many
1: do. Um, it's really hard to generalise. Um, uh, a lot of the larger libraries do have local history librarians uh, or local studies librarians. the terminology changes a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of the larger libraries do. yeah.
0: Well Jeff, thank you so much for having for coming on to our Glam. City episode. We usually finish with the, what we call a glam slam segment, where we look into our diaries at what's coming up. Um, what are you going to be getting your hands into in Historyland?
1: Oh well, we've got the 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 usual sort of round of. Um, I think we've got History Week coming up in at the end of the year in uh, September. I think it is, and uh, we usually do displays and and. Events around that. Um, as far as the local studies librarians group, we've got a meeting in Albury uh, in November, um, and then into next year we'd have a metropolitan meeting at some destination to be announced. But um, but uh, yeah, there's a, a sort of a, a constant. Stream of events and displays, mm. and and uh, you know, so uh, it, it makes life very interesting.
0: Do you ever drive around the Central Coast and sort of with your you know roll your window down and sort of have a look at it and go, oh, geez, I'd like that in my library, like a bow bird, a history bow oh, bird? Oh,
1: yes. You, look, I think the people I work with would say that yes, I'm a definite <laughs> bow bird, and uh, they sometimes refer to the collection in a not too complimentary way. Um, but uh, the uh, – look, there's still stuff out there. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing what turns up. You know, from, from when someone's clearing out a house, we had something from Melbourne um, arrive about a year ago, and it was a, a lovely published printed piece of ephemera, a map from about 1911 that turned out to be the first published um, tourist map for Woi you know, and pristine condition. It had been someone had been to Woi Woi, been on their holidays, gone back to Melbourne, put it in the drawer, forgotten for 70 years or so. But um, stuff still turns up which, mm. which is absolutely amazing and, and actually when you get those parcels that's like Christmas, that's lovely
0: Yeah, well thank you so much for joining us that brings us to the close of Glam City for today if you'd like to hear more from us just head to the 2 website that's 2SER.com you can also search for us in your favourite podcast app you can also hit me up on Twitter under at Anna Hope Clark is, does the Gosford Council tweet the library tweet?
1: No, we don't.
0: Untweeting. But you can certainly find them on their website. This podcast is made by a collaboration between the Australian Centre for Public History and 2SER 107.3. It's produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to acknowledge them as the original custodians of this land who've been archiving culture and telling stories for generations. In the meantime i'd also like to thank jeffrey potter for coming on book door today and being our guest thanks jeffrey
1: thank you anna